Thanks for joining Health Affairs this week. I'm Babrin Watts. And I'm Ryan Tanap. You'll continue to hear from us throughout the year with podcast episodes focused on health equity. But before we start, be sure to check out our Ahead of Print article that will be featured in our August issue entitled Early Oxycontin Marketing Linked to Long-Term Spread of Infectious Disease Associated with Injection Drug Use. Also, don't forget to check out uh, a new seven-part article series from Forefront on the private sector solutions for health equity sponsored by CVS Health. Really excited about this series. The last article comes out today, Vabe, uh, and it covers private sector's role in advancing health equity, private-public partnerships, and topics such as cardiovascular health, mental health, and maternal health. It's pretty interesting. Absolutely. So I guess just to start us off, I'd love to recognize some recent events and cultural observances um, that we that we had in in the past couple of months, babe. Yeah. So you know it. So it's the summertime, and you know the uh, the summer kicked off with um, Pride Month. You know, a lot of people know that Pride Month is celebrated in June, but pretty much don't know the background of it. So. Here it is. So, you know, actually on June 28th, 1969, the NYPD raided the Stonewall Inn. It was a bar frequented by LGBTQ folks. Raids on LGBTQ friendly bars were not uncommon. However, this raid was met with resistance and resulted in a six day riot, igniting the modern day gay rights movement. One year later, the riots were commemorated on June 28th, 1970. With the march over time, that annual march became known as the Gay Pride Parade. And eventually, June was designated as Gay and Lesbian Pride Month by President Bill Clinton. And the rest is history. Speaking of history, really quick, uh, that's not history that we learn about in school. Oh, it's not at all um, history that we learn about in school or or really um, elsewhere. And so I guess just thinking about pride and as we you know, see how that affect how, you know, the LGBTQIA plus community has been affected, like, at least since the beginning of the year. Um, One thing that I noticed, and baby, you and I had been talking about is the amount of anti um, LGBTQIA plus legislation that's been introduced. Yes, you know, so so this year, so so pride, you know, started from a movement. And we know that movements um, for the most part, have um, have some type of advocacy that goes along with that. But I would say this year was different. Um, I did participate in the in the Pride festivities in Baltimore in June, and the advocacy at Pride was strong um, due to the fact that in 2023 alone, there were more than 525 anti-LGBTQ bills introduced by the start of June. Approximately one third of of these bills introduced were related to healthcare mainly legislation aiming to block transgender youth from getting gender affirming care was the most prevalent among those bills related to health care. So, you know, this year pride was different. I mean, there were other things that um, that actually came up um, as far as like uh, education was uh, number one um, as, as it relates to the anti LGBTQ bills. But then that was quickly followed by um, anti-health LGBTQ bills. So it's um, it's really interesting um, the the um, I would say the turn of events that are going on within the LGBTQ community. I know a couple of weeks ago on the episode of this week, um, they they said for 
uh, LGBTQ legislation, it seems like uh, it was moving um, two steps forward and two steps back. So, so it'd be interesting to see how, you know, actually at the end of the year, how many anti-LGBTQ bills will be introduced, considering the fact that by June, 525 were um, introduced. And that's a big increase from previous years. And one of the things you just mentioned is that a lot of that legislation also is related to education and, um, for example, not being able to, to discuss LGBTQ topics in the classroom. But another thing I wanted to point out um, that happened at the end of Pride Month was the case uh, related to affirmative action and how the Supreme Court essentially ruled that race-conscious admissions in Harvard at Harvard and UNC are unconstitutional? Yes, they did rule that these were unconstitutional. Um, that ha- actually happened on June 29th. The Supreme Court rules race-conscious admissions um, policies at Harvard as well, as, which is a, um, one of the, the oldest private institutions here, here in the United States. And UNC, one of the biggest uh, public um, institutions here in the United States, are unconstitutional ending affirmative action. I think it'd be helpful to kind of to kind of discuss the history of affirmative action. Uh, I think a lot of people kind of it's a little bit murky the the history, kind of understanding the ebbs and flows. And I'd, I'd love to talk about that. So I guess going back to the the late seventies, there was a case between uh, the regents of the Uni- University of California versus Backey. And that ultimately allowed colleges to consider race in admissions, as long as, uh, you know, racial quotas were not a part of that. And then in one of the more recent ones in 2016 was Fisher versus the University of Texas, where uh, an an individual named Abigail Fisher sued the University of Texas. Um, She's a a white woman. um, And she argued that the use of race was... Uh, a violation of the Fourteenth Amendment, but ultimately the uh, the case of upheld uh, previous cases that it's that it is constitutional. So I think just in the you know less than a decade, we were seeing, like you said, a, a lot of change in in legislation, um, and specifically as it as it relates to education. Um, but I, I'd love to hear your thoughts, Vabe, on you know what do you think the implications of this recent uh, case are for for health equity. Yeah, you know, so so interesting. Um, so I, I will say, you know, having worked in the medical education space for a while, um, I did work with the um, the Association of American Medical Colleges. You know, they did the um, altering the course, trying to get more uh, actually black men into medicine. They looked at um, data that compared nineteenth. Uh, 19- 75 to 2015, and they found out that there were actually less black men entering entering into medical school in 2015 than it was in 1975. And so, you know, with this being said, you know, as we, you know, one of the um, one of the key uh, pillars actually deals with workforce diversity, and that workforce diversity includes like making sure that you do have um, physicians and other healthcare workers that are represented who are going into areas of, um, of different cultures. 
um, that does uh, make a difference. Having someone who can provide not only medical care, but who also can relate to your experience as a person who identifies as as a as a particular race with within America. And when I worked with you know that aspect, it was looking from you know the mental health um, aspect of things, where you know it is important. Um, well, at, at least for me, I'm, I'm going to speak for myself, where it is important where, you know, when I, when I do look for a therapist or a physician who may, you know, be able to help with behavior or mental health needs, that they, I prefer someone to have a background that I may have. I may look for a male, one. I may look for a black male. I may look for a person who is LGBTQ, but then sometimes I don't get that. So I may, you know, you know, um, choose, um, you know, a male is, it is usually always a male, but the male may be, um, may be, um, a racial, uh, racial ethnic minoritized group, but, but things along like going to someone who I do not have to explain my experience living as a black man in America or a gay man in America. So all those things, um, are important. And, and, you know, if we look at, you know, we're already having um, problems with really diversifying medical schools and, you know, and, and this will, you know, hamper, it, well, it allegedly, you know, hampers um, health equity. This could be a major problem. And, 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 and we'll see how this, this pans out. No, absolutely. I, I think your experience and also my experience as a, you know, woman of color, Asian American, um, you know, seeking care, it's so important to have culturally competent providers. Um, and also it would be, at least from my, my perspective, ideal to have somebody that I identify with. So um, I think going off of that, you mentioned mental health, which is a perfect transition. This month, July, is B.B. Moore Campbell National Minority Mental Health Month. Yes. Um, and B.B. Moore Campbell was an author, a journalist, a mental health advocate, and she was actually one of the co-founders of NAMI Urban Los Angeles. NAMI is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. So she was really focused on, you know, reducing that stigma within communities of color and encouraging uh, people to get care, mental health care. Uh, so, I mean, like you said, cultural competence is so important in healthcare and specifically in my minority mental health. Um, a lot of different communities face added barriers. Uh, one is uh, the Muslim American community, um, according to the American Psychiatric Association, only, or sorry, nearly one third um, Muslim Americans experience religious discrimination um, in, in a healthcare setting. So that's something to keep in mind when you're thinking about, okay, we can encourage communities of color and historically marginalized communities to access care, but once they get there, what is their experience like? Exactly. And, and, and you really have to incorporate that culture into care, particularly as you look at indigenous populations, their way of, uh, of providing mental health care. It may be totally different from, you know, from how it is provided among other groups and ethnicity, because uh, they are really um, into um, being connected to the land. So, you know, the conventional, you know, uh, therapy that we use they may not use that because they want to get um, receive a therapy that is respectful um, of their culture. Oh, absolutely. And in indigenous populations, American Indians, Alaska Natives, they have higher rates of mental illness compared to the general, pop general population in the U.S. And a lot of that is linked to intergenerational historical trauma and all of those aspects. So like you said, Vabe, it's, it's really important to have that culturally competent care because not not 
every community is the same. You know, there's no one size fits all um, approach uh, for the different populations, especially as it relates to mental health. Correct. And, you know, Ryan, you know, I, I think this year also we just hit the one mark anniversary of the um, hotline, speaking of mental health, of the um, hotline number for suicide prevention. Oh, yes. 988. That is a number that will connect you to um, crisis prevention services in your local community. So they essentially route you to, you know, a crisis counselor um, if you're experiencing suicidal thoughts, suicidal ideation, and you're in crisis, or if you somebody you know is and you want to know how to support them, that is a great resource to call. So so I would say over these past couple of months, uh, health equity has been front and center, it seems like. I don't, I don't think I realized that until we started talking, you know, more about everything that has been going on. But, you know, of course, you know, um, just, um, you know, in our podcast, be sure to check out the show notes. and. Um, you'll be able to um, go to some links and resources that we're talking about today. And also, as we begin to wrap up, um, as we uh, reiterate, be sure to check out our August issue of Health Affairs coming soon, plus our, our CVS-sponsored Forefront series on health equity. Thanks for listening uh, to another episode of Health Affairs this week with Vibran Watson and myself. Um, so if you like the episode, tell a friend leave a review or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Goodbye. Bye.